Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 41. After Hours with Dr. Michael Ward. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that it's an after-hours episode, and I'll be interviewing a guest on the show today. And I will be speaking today with Dr. Michael Ward. Dr. Ward is going to be coming on the show again in a few months when his new book on the abolition of man is released. But in preparation for that, I wanted to spend some time talking with him about all of the exciting Lewis-related activities he's been involved in thus far in his career. And in case you're new to the world of Lewis, or have been living under a rock, allow me to introduce him. Dr. Michael Ward is a fellow of Blackfriars Hall, University Oxford in his native England. He also works as Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University, Texas, and is the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis. Dr. Ward is probably best known as the author of the award-winning book Planet Narnia, which became the subject of the BBC television documentary called The Narnia Code. Dr. Ward has helped honour the legacy of C.S. Lewis in many ways, and we'll be talking about that later on today's show. He lived for three years in the Kilns, C.S. Lewis's Oxford home, and he's been faculty supervisor of the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society, but perhaps his greatest claim to fame is that he handed a pair of x-ray spectacles to Agent 007 in the James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough. Dr. Ward, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. I'm very glad to join you. So how do you know James Bond, and were you allowed to take any of the gadgets home? <laughs> well... Yeah, me and James Bond, we're, we're like this, he says, holding his fingers together. Um, I got into that movie thanks to C.S. Lewis, indirectly. And that, that's because uh, back in 1993, when the film Shadowlands was made, Richard Attenborough came to Oxford to make that movie with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger and um, put an advert in the local paper for extras. He needed about a thousand local people to be in the movie. And so I got into Shadowlands. And having got into Shadowlands, I, I name, my name stayed on the books of the agency that provided extras to filmmakers whenever they came to Oxford or near Oxford. And, and so every now and again, I'd be rung up and asked to be in some TV show or movie or whatever. And, and uh, I distinctly recall, I was living at the Kilns at the time. This was 1999, I think it would have been. Uh, I was rung up and the voice at the other end said, do you want to be in a movie next Monday and Tuesday. And by this stage, I was getting rather blasé about this whole extra business because it's often rather boring. Um, and I said, well, what is it? I, I might be free. And they said, it's the James Bond movie. Oh, I'm definitely free for that. <laughs> <laughs> and not only was it, you know, a James Bond movie, but it turned out to be the most interesting role I ever had as an extra because I actually got to interact with the actors. I wasn't just in some huge crowd scene. So I got to hand uh, Pierce Brosnan this pair of x-ray specs and uh i even got you know personal direction from the director michael apted i had to give an angry look uh <laughs> glasses were snatched out of my hand and I, I was paid extra for the for that angry look um so it was all jolly exciting but i have to tell you that the x-ray specs not only was i not allowed to take them home but they didn't even work it, it's all <sighs> it's all a conspiracy man <laughs> 
That's so cool. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> now, it's been a long time coming having you on the show because last time I was in Oxford back in pre-COVID days, I actually wasn't even married at the time. We went to Oxford to go and look at the cache of Chesterton artifacts at the oratory. And while we were there, I didn't know this until afterwards, my wife, then girlfriend, had emailed you saying, my boyfriend really loves all of your stuff. Can you come and have a drink with us? And I think you had responded saying that that you were in St. Andrews. And she just assumed that was one of the many colleges around Oxford. It's like, great, we'll be at the Eagle and Child in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, I, I, I had forgotten that. And I'm sorry that we, we never met on that occasion. Hopefully, once COVID is over, you can come back to Oxford and we can, we can go to the Eagle and Child. Alas, we will not be able to go to the Lamb and Flag. Have you read? I heard. Supposedly being closed down, which I can hardly believe. It's appalling. After 450 years, St. John's College is is letting it lapse into, you know, obscurity. It it can't be allowed to happen. Completely agree. If I could go there, I would would order my pints preemptively to save the the pub. (laughs) Well, let's get on to some housekeeping. Uh, Each week we have a quote of the week, drink of the week. And our quote of the week comes from an experiment in criticism. The author must not leave us to do all the work. He must show, and pretty quickly, that his writing deserves, because it rewards, alert and disciplined reading. And given what your scholarship has uh, related to, alert and disciplined reading, I thought was suitably appropriate. Now, the next thing is our drink of the week. And the Byzantine calendar is a little different from the Western one, which means that at the time of recording, Lent hasn't begun for you, but it has for me, which basically means I'm vegan until Easter. And since I can't have milk in my tea, I am relegated to coffee, which thankfully still tastes okay when regular milk is replaced with oat milk. Uh, Are you drinking anything? Well, I would like to say that I'm drinking a kind of wine which is called white, though it is really yellow, to quote one of my favourite lines from the Narnia Chronicles. But in fact, I'm just drinking water because it's it's five o'clock in the afternoon and I'm I ought not to be drinking anything stronger at this point. And you call yourself an Englishman. <laughs> I had like a half an hour ago. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. Well, cheers. Cheers. Dr. Ward, could you kick things off by telling us a little bit more about yourself, how you became interested in Lewis, and how that eventually transformed itself into a career? Yeah, I... Uh... Grew up in a Christian family, and some of my earliest memories are of my parents reading the Narnia books to me. My two brothers and I used to jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday morning, and my mum would read us the latest chapter of the latest chronicle, and then we'd all have breakfast and go off to church. That was a, a, a lovely routine as I was growing up. And so I was exposed to Narnia before I could even read them for myself. But as soon as I was able to read them for myself, I did so voraciously, and uh, then got into Lewis's other works. Um, his other fiction, his Christian apologetics. Then I went to Oxford, where I still live, and did an English degree. So I began looking at Lewis's academic writings. Uh, And I did a short undergraduate thesis on on Lewis uh, while I was an undergraduate. And uh, that was my first, you know, serious attempt at anything approaching scholarship on the man. And as a result of that, I was asked by my my tutor after I graduated to to give a one-off lecture and then a short course of tuition. And it gradually snowballed into something of a career teaching and speaking about Lewis. It was never that anything very conscious or deliberate that I said to myself, I want to be a Lewis scholar. But it just happened because I enjoyed it and I liked it and was more interested in it than anything else. That's living the life. 
So jealous. <laughs> now, in the introduction, I mentioned that you lived for several years in the kilns. How did that come about and what was that like? It came about because um, after I graduated, I, I stayed on living in Oxford and, and began helping run the C.S. Lewis Society. And one of the speakers we had come to address us one time was um, the president of the C.S. Lewis Foundation at the, at the, at the time, Stan Matson. And um, so I got to know him. And it's the Lewis Foundation that owns the kilns. The Lewis Foundation is a private charity based not very far from you in San Diego, uh, up the road in, uh, in Redlands, California. And uh, they need a person to live at the house and look after it and show people around. And, and so um, when I knew that that vacancy was, was on, the, on the books, I, I said to Stan Matson, I'm available. If you'd like an Englishman to do it for once, um, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> nearly always, it's been an American who's, who's taken on the role. And I'm interested, did living in Lewis's house change your view of him in any way? I think it probably did in, in subtle, small ways. I had the great fortune of, of not only you know, living in the house, but living particularly in, in Lewis's bedroom and study. They were mine for three whole years. It was fantastic. So it gave me a sense of the dimensions of his domestic life. Uh, and the house is very you know, small, got lots of small rooms and it's drafty and cold and echoey. And, and there are little things around the house that put me in mind of some of his writings. You know, the tiled kitchen floor, for instance, made, made me think of, the, uh, of that scene in, the, in that hideous strength where the people at St. Anne's um, in the kitchen, they, they, we're, we're told there about the tiled floor. And, the, and in one of Lewis's poems, we're told about the scullery taps. And so I could picture his own scullery taps and... And there, there's a way that you can walk through the eaves in, from one room into another, which is very like the magician's nephew. And, but perhaps the most interesting thing of all was one time I was, I was sitting in his upstairs study and I was listening to a radio adaptation of The Silver Chair on the BBC. And I was enjoying it, listening to it, thinking this is, this is a good adaptation. When it sort of hit me between the eyeballs that I was sitting in the very room where The Silver Chair was written. <laughs> <laughs> and Lewis had sat in that room decades before me and written this book, sent it out into the world. It had become popular, successful and adapt adapted by the BBC. And now it was being, being beamed back into the room. And I just happened to be the person listening to it and where, you know, where the circle was completed. And that felt very special and, and um, it gave me slight chills as well. Delightful. <laughs> Let's talk about the different projects that you've been involved in to honour Lewis. So the first one was in 1998. It was the centenary of Lewis's birth, and you helped organise a memorial in Addison's Walk. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I've already mentioned the C.S. Lewis Society, um, which I was helping run as a as an executive officer back in those days. I'm now the senior member, um, or more recently the senior advisor. Um, not that, that matters at all. Uh, in 1995, I happened to be reading the, the poem, Addis the Addison's Walk poem. It's entitled What the Bird Said Early in the Year. And I thought to myself, this poem really ought to be up in Addison's Walk. So that was 95. And I knew that 98 was coming, the centenary of Lewis's birth. So I, I put it to the C.S. Lewis Society that we, we make this a, a centenary project. And so I wrote to the president of Magdalen College and got his permission um, in principle. Then we had to raise the money and find someone to design the stone tablet. And uh, it cost about 5,000 quid, if I remember rightly. And we got a stonemason to uh, put this together. And 
I suggested a kind of perimeter design around the circle of this stone tablet uh, with, a, with a break in it, just to indicate, you know, the gates are drawn apart, as, as the poem has it. And it was unveiled in April 1998 after a special service of Evensong in the College Chapel, uh, at which we were able to have uh, Lewis's godson, Lawrence Harwood, uh, as a guest of honour. He read one of the lessons, and another guest of honour was... Um, was uh, Lady Freud, Jill Freud, who had been an evacuee at the Kilns during the war. She read the other lesson. So it was a splendid occasion. And if ever you go to, if any of your listeners ever go to Magdalen College, uh, walk round Addison's Walk and you will see this stone tablet in place and hopefully it will be there forever. And not only was that the place where Lewis had his conversation with two of his friends that ultimately led to his conversion to Christianity, it's also the place where my co-host Matt was walking, reading Mere Christianity as he was being drawn back to Christianity himself. So it's it's hallowed ground. It's hallowed ground. I, I have known people who have uh, deliberately gone to Addison's Walk and indeed underneath the very stone tablet, which is now there, in order to get engaged to each other. Um, oh my goodness, I'm utterly outclassed. <laughs> Why didn't I do that? Marie, we're going to have a trip to England. We're going to do something. <laughs> the other major project to honour Lewis, that culminated in 2013, which was the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. And that involved the unveiling of a memorial to him at Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. So first of all, for those who aren't English or aren't familiar, what is Poets' Corner? Poets' Corner is, the, I think it's the, the north transept, uh, no, the south transept of... Um, of Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is, is the, the sort of national church of England. Uh, it's the place where all our kings and queens have been crowned, um, almost without exception. Um, the present queen, Elizabeth II, was crowned there in 1953. Because it's the national church, it's it's become a home for, you know, relics and monuments to all the great people of the nation. And Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English poetry, was uh, buried there uh, when did he die? Was it 1400? Um, and ever since then, this part of the Abbey has been known as Poet's Corner after Chaucer. And so pretty much every great person of English literature uh, has either been buried there or memorialised there. Shakespeare, Wordsworth, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, and people continue to be either buried there or memorialised there. And it occurred to me that C.S. Lewis ought to be among that great throng. And so when a member of the uh, chapter of the Abbey got in touch with me um, in 2012, I think it was, to say, we want to do something for the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, which was approaching in 2013. Uh, we're thinking of putting on a, a day conference, he said. Uh, Can I come and talk to you about it? So he, he popped up from London to Oxford and we had a lunch together and, and chatted over his plans. And while we were talking about this day conference, I said to him, isn't it time that Lewis was memorialised in Poets' Corner? Because <laughs> I knew there had been attempts to put him there before, uh, and they'd always been turned down. And he said, I think you would get a positive response if you approach the current dean of, Ab of the Abbey. And so I, I put together a letter and got six or seven Lewis scholars to sign it with me and put it to the dean, and he immediately said yes. So we then... Uh, then I was involved in my second attempt to raise a lot of money. Uh, this cost a lot more than the Addison's Walk Memorial and was far more complicated. But I'm pleased to say it came came off and it was unveiled on the very the very day, 50, 50 years to the day since Lewis died, 
namely the 22nd of November 2013. And weren't there other talks and essays that were put out around the same time as part of the celebration? Yeah, so the, the Abbey had its day conference and uh, there were other events too in Oxford and Cambridge. And, and so I and uh, my friend Peter Williams uh, assembled all these talks and lectures and indeed the sermon preached by Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, and put them in a, in a book called C.S. Lewis at Poet's Corner, uh, which is available from Whipf and Stock Publishers. Yeah, that was our, our literary memorial to Lewis. But the, the stone memorial is there again, hopefully forever, in the pavement of the, of the South Transept. And it has on it the quotation from Lewis's address, Is Theology Poetry?, where he finishes by saying, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We cons considered all sorts of various quotations to put on this stone, but this was the one that seemed most appropriate. If ever you're in London, go and see it. Absolutely. It's always my recommendation whenever I have friends visiting London that they need to go and hear Evensong at Westminster Abbey. Mm. It's just gorgeous. One of the best it choirs is. in the world. One of the most beautiful places in the world. Yes, absolutely. And Evensong is just one of the most beautiful liturgies in the world. The English choral tradition. And if you can go, if you can't go to Westminster Abbey, at least go to Magdalen College, Oxford, where you can attend Evensong most days of the week during term time. You don't have to be a member of Magdalen College to attend, and that too is is surpassingly beautiful. So let's move on from talking about honouring Lewis to uh, honouring Walter Hooper, because a few months ago, a few of us podcasters, we got together and offered a tribute to Walter, the man who was Lewis's former secretary, editor, all around cheerleader. You knew Walter rather well, didn't you? I got to know him soon after I came up to Oxford as a student, yes, in 1987, uh, because he was a, a regular at the C.S. Lewis Society meetings. So I got to know him through that society. And then after I graduated and began helping run the society myself, I got to know him quite well because I used to go to him for advice about who, who to invite as speakers. And, and he would come and dine with the speakers. And, and so I, yeah, I, I, I became a good friend of, of Walter's and Indeed, he kindly involved me in, in some of his own projects. So I was a kind of research assistant for him as he put together his uh, C.S. Lewis, a companion and guide. And uh, he kindly invited me to, to attend some of the, the notable funerals that he was having to go to at last. You know, so I went to the funeral of Owen Barfield, for instance, oh. with Uber. I went to the funeral of, of Maureen Moore, Lady Dunbar, the, you know, C.S. Lewis's kind of surrogate sister. He also kindly invited me to attend the, the royal premiere of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe movie at the Royal Albert Hall and smuggled me into the after show party, <laughs> uh, which, was, which was great fun. So yeah, he was very important to me uh, in terms of my work on C.S. Lewis, but also a great friend personally. And though this is not strictly relevant to our discussion today, he, he was a great example uh, to me um, of an Anglican priest who could become a Catholic. I myself became an Anglican priest and am now a Catholic, and indeed a Catholic priest. And perhaps that would not have happened if Walter hadn't uh, blazed the trail for me, I wonder. <laughs> when we put together that tribute, 
I recorded most of my interviews all in one day. So I had people back to back to back to back. And it was very noticeable the things that struck people about Walter. His his generosity of of spirit, of time, of encouragement. And I, I only met him very briefly on that trip into Oxford because mm-hmm. my wife and I, after we had seen all the chests and stuff, we went to Mass and bumped into Walter Hooper. It's there's something quite moving hearing so many people speak about a person in such glowing terms and very very keenly identified virtues. Mm. Yes. Well, he was an extremely lovable man. He he was humorous, he was warm, he was generous. He, he had a boyish mischievousness to him and a, and a kind of sweetness of personality too. He was very gentlemanly and courteous. He had that Southern charm. Remember, he, he was, you know, North Carolinian. And I had the great privilege at his funeral of giving the homily. And I, one of the things I said in my, in my homily was that uh, when Walter became a Catholic, he took as his confirmation St. Saint, Saint Joseph. But it happened uh, on, on the day of the feast day of St. Ignatius of Loyola that he became a Catholic. And I, I pointed out the appropriateness of both those two saints, because St. Joseph is the man in the background, as it were, the man whose words are never recorded in scripture. And Walter was very self-effacing. He was prepared to spend his life devoted to another man's work. But he was also quite pugnacious. He fought to defend Lewis's legacy and to enhance his reputation. So he had something of the St. Ignatius of Loyola, soldier saint about him as well. And, and those two qualities of, of, the, of the deferential and the, and the pugnacious, pugilistic, are not often seen in combination. Walter was quite an unusual personality, I think. And it was, it was interesting as I had that duty to put the homily together, to, to happen upon these two saints who helped explain it to me. So it's a great loss. Oxford feels emptier without Walter Hooper. It's a great sadness to us all who knew him and loved him. And it was, it's a terrible shame too that he should have died during the COVID pandemic because so few people were able to attend his funeral. It is, uh, as I'm sure you know, available online. It was live streamed. So people who, who haven't yet seen it can watch it after the fact, which is a good thing. But, you know, the oratory church would have been overflowing with people from all around the world um, if people could have attended in person. Uh, because he he had, quite rightly, an international standing as a Lewis scholar and was known by known and loved by people from all over the world. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword because while the church wasn't packed, it also meant that everybody everywhere could see his funeral because yeah. COVID has forced every single church to up their streaming game. That's true. It's quite possible that if COVID hadn't happened, that there would be no live streaming of services at all from the oratory, uh, not yeah. even a service like that. So yeah, you're quite right. So moving on, we couldn't possibly have you on the show without talking about your book, Planet Narnia, and its popular companion, The Narnia Code. Now, long-time listeners to this podcast will have heard me speak about your book every season when we do another Narnia book. And I've also done a couple of episodes just offering a, a brief summary and introduction and even appeared on another podcast arguing for your case. Uh, could you please tell us uh, a little bit about how you came up with your theory, your thesis about the Chronicles of Narnia and what it entails, just for those who, for some reason, haven't been listening thus far? 
<laughs> well, what is it? The thesis is basically that the seven chronicles of Narnia are structured so as to reflect the qualities of the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos, the seven planets that give us the names of the days of the week. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Saturn, the sun and the moon are three of the medieval planets and the other four days of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, think in, in French, Mardi, Mars, Mercredi, Mercury, Jeudi, Jove's Day, and Vendredi, Venus's Day. So those are the seven planets. And Lewis wrote about these seven spiritual symbols, as he called them, and he described them as spiritual symbols of permanent value, which were especially worthwhile in his own generation. And if you know his poetry, you'll, you'll be familiar with his long, complex, alliterative poem, The Planets, 122 lines, all about these seven spiritual symbols. If you know the, that hideous strength, you'll know about the Descent of the Gods chapter, where five of these seven planetary personalities come down to Earth. If you know the discarded image, you'll know the chapter on the heavens, where Lewis gives a scholarly academic account of, of how medieval writers have, have used these seven spiritual symbols. So all over Lewis's work, he's using these, uh, these planets. And when you take those seven attributes, those seven characteristics, and, and lay them over the Narnia Chronicles, as it were, all sorts of otherwise puzzling oddities in the Chronicles suddenly spring into focus and make much better sense. And lots of scholars and critics have, over the, over the decades, puzzled away at the Narnia Chronicles because... There are oddities, there are loose ends, there are seeming inconsistencies in, in the seven books. Now, I myself was, you know, long, long ago aware of, of this and made a half-hearted attempt to link the chronicles to different plays by Shakespeare once upon a time. And I was aware that other scholars had tried to link them to the seven deadly sins and the seven sacraments and pretty much any seven that people could think of. But amazingly, nobody had seriously attempted to link them to the seven planets, which is the most obvious septet of all. Um, so I was uh, halfway through my doctoral studies. I was researching Lewis's theological imagination. And one night I happened to be lying in bed reading Discarded Image and the chapter about the heavens, when it occurred to me that it would be useful to compare and contrast his academic discussion of these symbols with the poetic discussion that I knew was in the planet's poem. So I was reading two books simultaneously, you know, cross-referring back and forth between these two versions. And when I got to the lines in the poem of where Jupiter is said to bring about winter past and guilt forgiven, I felt like I had been struck by lightning. Winter past and guilt forgiven. <laughs> that hit me between the eyeballs and made me think, of course, of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe which is all about the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt. <laughs> it's like a five-word summary of the entire book. So once I'd got that in my mind, it was pretty easy to see that that wasn't just a random connection, but it really gave a key to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that the other six planets gave keys to the other six chronicles. So my doctoral research suddenly took on a whole new focus, and I spent the next 18 months rereading everything Lewis had ever written about the planets, rereading everything that anyone had ever written about C.S. Lewis on the planets. <laughs> and everything I turned up just confirmed over and over and over again that this indeed seems to be what Lewis was secretly up to. He never told anybody that he was keying the chronicles to the planets. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
That's a really good description. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Because my journey into Lewis, I had lived and breathed the Chronicles of Narnia as a child. I had started his apologetics work in my mid-twenties. And I'm slowly working my way through his corpus. I'm not trying to rush through it. But I had read your book fairly soon after we started this podcast. And I just now see it everywhere. And it is very strange when when you look at it. How did nobody see this before? Because you mm. see the planets everywhere. And this mm -hmm. medieval conception of reality that Lewis was so enamored with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a very good question as to why it was not seen. And actually, I, I, I explore that a little bit in the final chapter of Planet Narnia and give a few reasons. One of them being that a lot of Lewis scholars and critics being Christians assume that astrology, planetary influences, are necessarily unchristian or even anti-Christian. And therefore, they think that all these appearances of, of planetary matters in Lewis's other works are just, you know, sort of things that he had to show an interest in because he was a medievalist, but not because he was really interested in them. Or that the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the irony, that there's a long tradition of Christian astrology. And astrology is not a dirty word. It, it shouldn't make us blanch or, you know, gather our skirts and run in the screaming in the opposite direction. Astrology just means, you know, the study of the stars. And there's nothing wrong or foolish or dangerous about studying an aspect of God's creation. It all depends what you do with that study. If it leads you to worship the stars, that would be unchristian. If it leads you to regard the stars as determinative and overruling your free will and your responsibility before God, that would be unchristian too. But, but there's plenty of ways in which you can study the stars without doing either of those things. And the most obvious example of Christian astrology is in Matthew's gospel, where the wise men come from the east because they are following the star and it leads them to Christ's birthplace and it leads them to worship him. And as you say, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Lewis himself describes Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Um, so once you would see Narnia through this particular lens, um, it really springs, as I say, into focus and, and is beautiful and moving and, and just so brilliant. And all the more brilliant that Lewis should have kept it secret. Um, that speaks to his humility and his and his ingeniousness, really his canniness as a writer. Um, that his whole purpose was to make us feel these seven spiritual symbols, not to get us to look at them. Which is also kind of funny because one of the main criticisms I've heard from people who don't like Narnia is they talk about it being so obvious. Yeah. It's just clear allegory. <laughs> well, this is the funny thing. Lewis can't win. On the one hand, he's criticized for being slapdash and for throwing the Narnia books together in a, in a haphazard mishmash kind of way. On the other hand, he's criticized for people by people who say, oh, the allegory is, is wooden and far too obvious. But the, he's having the last laugh on both those sets of criticisms, because as I believe I have shown beyond reasonable doubt, the Narnia Chronicles are, are not merely wooden allegories, but the, the Christian substructure is is interwoven with the story in the most sophisticated fashion possible and as for them being a hodgepodge well yes superficially they appear to be rather random in places but but that's the whole point that lewis rather cunningly was prepared to give the 
appearance of slapdash, I think for apologetic reasons, because the real world too often seems rather random. And it, you know, when we see inexplicable events happening and accidents occurring and innocent people suffering and people are apt to say, nobody's in charge. There can be no God. There can be no intelligent design behind this cosmos. And you Christians are all you know, just whistling in the dark, trying to pretend otherwise. So Lewis is kind, is kind of giving us a, an enacted parable here. Narnia looks slapdash on the surface, but if you only know what he as the author is up to, keying each chronicle with minute attention to detail uh, to, to each of these seven spiritual symbols, then again, you, you, you laugh too soon. You, 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 sh you should think again. Well, like Shasta, we only discover near the end of the story that the lion was there the whole time. Absolutely. Uh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. And it reminds me of Puddle Glam in the Silver Chair, where he says, there are no accidents. And then he goes and accidentally trips on a fire. Silly Puddle Glam. <laughs> <laughs> now, most of the people I've spoken to fully embrace Planet Narnia. However, I have occasionally met unbelievers. And... They've offered different kinds of objections. And I wondered, what kind of objections to Planet Narnia have you heard? And how have you responded to them? Yeah, there are some people who, who are holding out. I'm pleased to say that most people that I've encountered, most Lewis scholars and critics seem to be persuaded and, and not just persuaded either, but thrilled that this has finally come to light. Um, but yeah, you can't convince all the people all the time. And those who resist embracing the theory, do so for, well, I think I've noticed three main reasons. One is they can't believe that Lewis could have kept it secret. So I, I have a preemptive strike against that in Planet Narnia, where I point out that Lewis could be very, very secretive about all manner of quite important things, including his own marriage, for instance. You know, he, when he got married to Joy Davidman in 1956, nobody knew about it except the two witnesses. Not even close friends like Tolkien were told for the best part of a year. Now, a man who can keep his marriage secret can keep anything secret. <laughs> and, you know, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, left out so many important things that one of his other friends said it, it ought to have been entitled Suppressed by Jack. So I don't think there's much weight behind that criticism that Lewis could not have kept it secret. Of course he could. And indeed, there are very good reasons why he would have wanted, would have had to keep it secret, because as I say, the whole point of it was, an, it was that it is an address to the imagination, not to the intellect. We are meant to feel these spirit, spiritual symbols, not know them with our contemplative intellect. The second criticism is that um, people say, oh, but Lewis didn't have the whole se series in mind when he began The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I think, I think this is the one I've heard most often that I think is the more convincing because they said he was just writing a line which in the wardrobe, then added two more, then added mm. another four on top of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my argument is not that he set out with the intention of writing seven books on seven planets. That's not what I'm arguing. And I make that pretty darn clear in several places in Planet Narnia. Um, my argument is that he set out with the intention of writing a Jupiter-themed story, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And having completed that, he then said to himself, let's do it again. And then let's do it a third time. And gradually he decided he would do all seven. So my, my theory does not rest at all on his having mapped out the whole sequence ahead of time. Not at all. That, that's just an irrelevancy. That's a, that's, that's a dead end. 
So I, I, that's, that's an even, in my view, that's an even weaker argument than the first one. I think it appeals to some people because in order for there to be a conspiracy, the plan mm. has to be entirely thought out. And right. so the idea that it could have been progressive, mm. they feel that it undermines it in some way. The thing that ultimately convinced me that wasn't a good argument was one of the letters around the time that Lewis was writing the line, the Witch in the Wardrobe, he, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something to the effect of, I'm trying something out at the moment. Mm. It was, he wanted to run an experiment to see if he could inject the, you know, the Kappa element of Jupiter into a children's story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, well, he was once asked by a former Oxford student called Charles Wrong why he'd written Seven. Um, and he said he had an idea that he wanted to try out. And having tried it out to the full after seven books, it was time to stop. And then I think Lewis probably realized he, he'd sort of opened a flank. He'd, he'd exposed himself, as it were, because the, the next obvious question is, so what idea is worked out to the full after seven? <laughs> um, and so immediately he throws some dust in the eyes of Charles Wrong by saying, well, there had to be seven or three or nine because those are the magic numbers. But that's, that's just a smokescreen. Because as we've just discussed, you know, when he first set out, he only thought there was going to be one, not three or seven or nine, but he eventually he settled on seven for a very good reason, because that's the number of the seven spiritual symbols that, by which he set so much store. So those two arguments, I think, both fail pretty easily. The, the more substantial critique is, is that I'm cherry picking my examples, uh, that I you know, I have confirmation bias. Uh, and so I see what I want to see and ignore what I have to ignore. That's a good argument to raise. And it's one that I, you know, wrestled with myself as I tried to develop the case, because, you know, I'm sufficiently self-aware to realize that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> um, and so I, in Planet Nine, you know, I talk about these, these counter examples, you know, the fact that, for instance, there's a a long lunar, apparently lunar scene in the, in Prince Caspian. You remember the end of Prince Caspian where after the battle they they have the big bonfire and then everyone falls asleep except Aslan and he stares all night unblinking at the moon. And one critic has said, well, that's a very that's a very lunar episode. It's full of the moon and moonlight. So why why isn't that evidence of a lunar theme? Which on the surface is a good criticism. But you have to ask the next question. You have to ask why is, is Aslan staring all night at the moon while everybody else falls asleep? And that's because it's, again, part of the Marshall theme, the Mars theme that dominates the whole of Prince Caspian. Because if you know Lewis's treatment of Mars in his other books, uh, most notably Perilander and That Hideous Strength, you find there that Mars is described as the vigilant Mars, vigilant Malacandra, captain of a cold orb. And so vigilance is a key martial term in Lewis's imaginative lexicon. You know, you have to think of a, of a sentry on duty on a castle wall or, you know, some, some soldier, you know, staying awake through the watches of the night while all his comrades in arms sleep. And that's precisely what Aslan is doing. He's embodying his martial nature. He's, he's the true Mars. He's, he's the Lord of hosts, mighty in battle, to give the biblical equivalent. 
And that's why he stays awake while everyone else falls asleep. Now, of course, during the night, what happens? The moon comes out, the stars <laughs> come out. But that doesn't mean, therefore, it's a lunar moment because everything has to happen either during the day or during the night. That doesn't mean that only lunar and solar influences can be felt. Yeah, it's almost like they're being distracted by the big thing in the sky rather than what's actually going on. Well, exactly. You have to ask not only what is happening, but why is it happening and how is it happening? You have to ask not so much about the nouns of the story as the adjectives. You know, here's another example. The last battle. The very word battle appears in the title. So you would think, again, Mars. this would be a Mars book. But look at the adjective. This is the last battle. This is the final conflict. This is the great apocalypse, which brings Narnia to an end when everybody dies, including Narnia itself before it's resurrected. So Saturn, being the planet of old age and death and disaster, is the dominant planet in the last battle, even though there are plenty of military and seemingly martial events going on in the story. So you have to get beyond the surface and, and look at the you know, the meaning behind these nouns. It's, it's, it puts me in mind of what Lewis says in um, one of his essays where he says, um, so many materialists, the, their world is all fact and no meaning. Mm. They're like dogs who don't understand pointing. You point a dog to a bit of food on the floor and rather than eating the food on the floor, the dog just sniffs your finger because <laughs> it doesn't understand what indication means. And, and we can induce that kind of dog-like mentality on ourselves if we're not careful. It actually reminded me of a line from Bruce Lee where he said, it's like a finger pointing at the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger too much, otherwise you miss all that heavenly beauty. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's, it ties in totally with Lewis's own theory of, of authorial intent, doesn't it? Where he says uh, the author, the poet, makes of himself not a spectacle, but a pair of spectacles. We look through the, the poet's eyes in order to see more clearly what he himself is looking at. And in response to that final criticism that you mentioned about, well, don't we see the moon here? Don't we see the sun here? I, I've often compared it to like a, a key signature or a, a particular palette of an artist. These things are chosen in order to evoke a mood, but they will also contain many of the elements that you'll find in other key signatures or in other kinds of paint. You know, just because I'm choosing this particular, these particular sets of shades, that doesn't mean that automatically because it's got blue in it, it must mean this. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's a very good analogy. The, the key, the musical key, because, you know, C major and A minor have the same key signature, mm -hmm. but everybody knows that they sound very different. A, mi a major key always sounds different from a minor key. All the notes on the keyboard are being played in all keys, but the signature is what gives, you know, gives cut colors the music through and through. Lewis talks about it in, term in literary terms in his book, Studies in Words, where he refers to what he calls the insulating power of context. So he says that when we see the notice wines and spirits above a shop front, we don't interpret the word spirits to mean angels, devils, ghosts, and fairies. We know that spirits here must mean liquor. It must mean, you know, gin and whiskey and the rest of them. But we know that because of the first word wines tips us off that spirits has this particular meaning. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's precisely what, how we should approach Narnia. That we've, got, we've got to look at the total context of each work in order to understand each part of it. One of the things I will say that is very nice that even among unbelievers, 
they will always speak very highly of your work. The thing I often hear most often is, I just think he pushes it too far. But they always give you credit for introducing an entire generation of Lewis scholarship to how important the planets were to Lewis, even if they think that you overplay your hand. Good. Well, I'm I'm pleased by that, and I'm I'm fully prepared to acknowledge that you know in, in given instances I might have overplayed my hand. You know, there's there's legitimate debate to be had about some of these more obscure examples, and I'm I'm myself. I mean, you know, I'm sometimes I'm myself. I'm slightly uh, ambiguous about you know the certainty I attach to any one particular example, but it's the it's the paradigm as it's as a whole, which I think is is so persuasive, it has such explanatory power that that it really does put the burden of proof on those who would dispute the, the, the this, this thesis, I think. But having said all that, I've also, since writing Planet Narnia, I've continued looking into these matters, of course, and I found plenty of other confirmatory little tidbits here and there, um, some of them absolutely minuscule, but to me, utterly, utterly convincing. I think that this this idea of pushing it too far is it, that's a bit of a red herring. That that's a that's a canard as a way of people to you know to shuffle and and to shift and not really get on board. What I often ask is counterfactuals. So, for example, in Prince Caspian, when they find the chess piece, what kind of chess piece is it? And I ask, mm. what what else could it have been? And also, what would I have chosen? Honestly, mm. if I'd have chosen it, it would have been a king. Or a queen. That seems really obvious. It's like, hey, kids, we're back in Narnia. But Lewis doesn't choose that. He chooses a knight. Yes. Or or even a castle. They're in Care Paravel. You've got the queen, the king, or the castle. And he doesn't choose any of those. Yeah, yeah. Yes, quite. And not only is it a chess knight, but it's a chess knight with a little red ruby eye in it. Red being, you know, a highly appropriate color for Mars, the red planet. So, yeah. Lewis himself, when he's analysing the works of Dante, he wrote a couple of essays on Dante, and he analyses Dante's symbolism with with microscopic attention. And he and Lewis says in one of those essays that it's out of all these these tiny little details, these minutiae, that uh, the total effect of the poem arises. It's upon these that it depends for its total effect. And now any one of those tiny little details in isolation looks rather unimportant, but gather them all together and suddenly you have, you know, the Paradiso, which Lewis regarded as the highest point that poetry had ever reached. I regard it as one of the hardest poems I've ever read, but (laughs) he's entitled to his opinion. The poet's battles are won in advance, Lewis says, and, you know, the, the the, the achievement of certain effects in literature often can be traced back to a you know the the lighting of a fuse that was that was lit ten chapters earlier. There's a, a great example of that in the horse and his boy, if you ask me. Though we didn't get into that now. Um, so, I mean, this again is one of the reasons why I think the argument is so plausible. That it's not only that we have all these other treatments of the planets in Lewis's other writings, we have himself talking about how literary effects are achieved in his literary critical works. So we know. How he how he thought authors ought to work, and we can see what he thought they ought to work with in these seven spiritual symbols. Take all that and apply it to Narnia. Bingo. 
Well, there's one more subject I wanted to ask you about. We began by talking about your film career with James Bond. And I'd like to end by pointing out that a few months ago, I saw pictures on your Facebook page of you in Lewis's parish church in Headington wearing a wig. <laughs> what was that about? Uh, that was great fun. I've never had so much fun, I think. So you mentioned the Narnia Code, this BBC documentary that was made about Planet Narnia. Uh, and that was directed by Norman Stone, the chap who made the original BBC Shadowlands. Norman Stone has a long-standing interest in C.S. Lewis. More recently, he has taken on as a project um, a film version of the stage play called The Most Reluctant Convert, which has had quite a lot of success in America and has now been adapted for the silver screen. And so Norman Stone was assembling his, his cast and his crew to film in Oxford last September and October. And he knew that there were going to be a couple of brief scenes in the parish church. And he thought that I could possibly, though I'm not an actor, I, I could play the part of the parish priest, the local vicar, the vicar of Holy Trinity Headington Quarry. If anyone's had the training for it, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to be an Anglican priest. I'm now a, a Catholic priest. And I know C.S. Lewis uh, and his works. So I was, I suppose, quite an obvious choice. So Norman Stone kindly asked me to do this, and I jumped at the chance. And I went for my fitting, my costume, and you know, to be made to look appropriate for the 1930s. And I was surprised that the, uh, the costume person said, or you know, hair and makeup said, you need a wig. Because I thought my bald head looked sufficiently, you know, timeless <laughs> <laughs> that it would it would do for the 1930s. But no, they they had to fit me out with a full head of hair, which I haven't had since I was in my 20s. And uh, <laughs> and my own father, seeing photographs of me, couldn't even recognise me. I did a double anyway, take. <laughs> it was great, great fun. It was fantastic fun. Uh, and I even got to say some proper lines, which I never got to do with James Bond. Uh, and I got to meet, of course, not only Max McLean, the, who plays the older C.S. Lewis. It's from his point of view that the whole movie is told. But I got to meet the young C.S. Lewis, who's played by the actor Nicholas Ralph. And he has just been propelled to the very top of, you know, the, the table of fame by, by his starring in this new TV series, All Creatures Great and Small. Mm -hmm. Remake is, of a classic. Yeah, it's really good. I, I've loved it. I've watched every episode and thought it was fantastic. It was probably an, an improvement upon the original, which is saying something. And anyway, Nicholas Ralph plays the young C.S. Lewis. And as I entered the set that day, well, it's not a set, as I entered location uh, that day, I saw this young man looking uncannily like the uh, the young C.S. Lewis. And I so I went up to him and said, are you C.S. Lewis? And he said, yes, well, I'm one of them. <laughs> because, you know, his older self was elsewhere in the building. Um, so it's it's great for the movie that uh, he, Nicholas Ralph, should should be having such a prominent role because he's just he's just become one of the hottest properties in, in English acting was, well, I shouldn't say English, I say, should say British because he's Scottish and it's really good. I've, I've seen some of the rushes and I think it's going to be a fine, fine movie. Do you have any idea when the movie itself is going to be released? I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows yet. Uh, I was recently in touch with Norman Stone because he, he needed me to do some um, re-recording of one of my lines and he, and he doesn't yet know when it's going to be released or indeed where, uh, which platform. Um, it's all rather uncertain, but your listeners should 
should keep their eyes peeled because when it does come out, it's going to be really good. I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about it. Um, I think it's going to be much, much better, immeasurably better than that recent film about Tolkien, which I thought was really disappointing. I didn't hate it. It, it was a little lackluster, particularly when it came to his faith. It's like, I don't know how you even try and separate that out in his life in the way that they did. But I, I didn't think it was so bad. What, what was the main thing that you didn't like about it? Well, yeah, probably the main thing I disliked about it was that it, it almost completely ignored his faith. Mm. Um, but I just, I didn't find that it was, it, it had a 1910, 1920s kind of feel. It just felt modern. It, it felt like some of those episodes of Downton Abbey, <laughs> where, where, where all the characters are going through surprisingly modern turmoils. <laughs> um, <laughs> So of course, you know, they had to give Edith this, you know, this proto-feminist speech, um, which just felt out of place. I thought the young Tolkien in that movie was was great. I thought he was very well cast. He he had a look of of real intelligence in his eyes. Whereas I'm afraid the the older actor playing Tolkien, he just he didn't convince me as someone who had Tolkien's brain power. Yeah, he Sorry. needs to be more of a nerd. I agree. Much more nerdy. I mean, you don't have to be as brilliant as Tolkien to play someone like Tolkien. Of course you don't. Just look it. Because most people aren't as brilliant as Tolkien. But you have to at least be able to fake it. And I, I felt that it was very disappointing. My friend uh, Holly Audrey, whom you recently had on the show, she's got this very dry line in her new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, where, she said, where she's got a chapter on how William Morris influenced Tolkien. And William Morris, of course, is, is, is famous now, not just for his literature, but for his, his textile designs. And Holly points out how perhaps the most interesting, arguably the most interesting shot of the Tolkien movie was a lingering display of Morris-designed wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ward, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your work. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you and the stuff you've published? My website is michaelward.net, www.michaelward.net. And that's the place to go. I'm also available as to be friended on Facebook if anybody uses Facebook. And uh, yeah, what else do you want to know? Uh, there is one last thing though, one, one opportunity I'd like to present to you because we're going to be talking to you later this season about your upcoming book on the abolition of man. Uh -huh. And as Matt, Andrew and I mentioned in our New Year's episode, we are open to suggestions for season five. It'll mm -hmm. probably begin, I'm thinking now, probably September. So I'd like you to make your pitch for the abolition of man so that our listeners will hear you, be inspired and write to us and tell us you've got to do the abolition of man. <laughs> Thank you for queuing me up. Uh, yes, for season five, you should study the abolition of man because it's one of the most important things Lewis wrote. And um, I've written this guide to the abolition of man. It's called After Humanity. It's going to come out in May, all being well. And um, I've learned so much about the abolition of man, uh, putting this book together. It, it's become much, much more interesting and indeed important to me as I've studied it. It's quite a difficult book. You know, it originated as three philosophical lectures. But Lewis himself said of it that it's almost his own favorite amongst his books. 
Ha, suck it, Andrew. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. uh, our, our co-host Andrew Lazo keeps talking about how Till We Have Faces is, was Lewis's best book, and Lewis thought so too. So I'm, I'm glad oh, to well, hear that, that he. True. No, that is true. He thought that Till We Have Faces was his best book, his best novel at any rate. But he thought he says he says of Abolition of Man, it's almost his favourite. And Lewis drew a, a, a strict distinction between the best and the favourite. Um, Fair enough. So, I say that partly because there's a famous conversation you had with Walter Hooper about that. Mm -hmm. um, Perilandro also fitted into that collection, exactly. right? Yes, yes, yes. Of the, of the Ransom trilogy, they mm -hmm. they said, which is your favourite and which is the best? And Lewis thought that Perilandro was the best, but, he, but that hideous strength with his favourite. Anyway, so to go back to the abolition of man, and indeed that hideous strength, that hideous strength is the fictional equivalent of the abolition of man. Lewis himself uh, says that. So if you want to understand that hideous strength, you need to understand the abolition of man. And indeed, you know, you look at the opening chapters of mere Christianity, right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. You know, that's a, that's a popular and more theological expression of the same set of ideas. Um, and really this whole understanding of natural law is everywhere in C.S. Lewis. His, his attack upon subjectivism um, is, runs throughout his works. So Walter Hooper himself says that really a proper understanding of abolition of man is indispensable to, to a reading of, of C.S. Lewis. And other scholars describe it as the linchpin of his writings. And I, I in my work on the book, have, you know, I've, I've just confirmed that over and over again. It's, it's revealed itself to me as, as a really key work. So... Everybody should know it and understand it, but it's hard work to understand. So, really, when you when you make Abolition of Man your season book, you really need my book <laughs> After Humanity as the guide. So, you really, should have two books together. You have made your case, <laughs> listeners. You decide. <laughs> Doctor Ward, thank you again, and thank you to all of our top tier supporters: Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy, and all who support us on Patreon. As always, Pints with Jack t-shirts are available on our website, pintswithjack.com, as are our Pints with Jack Glencairn glasses, which are laser etched with lasers worthy of a James Bond villain. <laughs> Thanks again to Dr. Ward for joining us today, and listeners, please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>